welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore, Maryland. This season, we're talking about working with Elixir, and today we've got a very, very special guest on the show. We're going to be hitting hiring and training notes with Sean Lewis from Divi. How are you, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you, Justice? I'm doing lovely. Thank you for coming on the show. We're very glad to have you. We are also joined by my indomitable, intrepid, inevitable co-host, Eric Ostrich. How are you, Eric? Doing great. <laughs> I don't know why I pick I as the alliterative letter. It's such a hard one. But we're super duper glad to have both of you on the show today. First of all, Sean, you're over there at Divi out in Utah. Could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background, Divi, and how you got started working in Elixir? Yeah, um, I'm Sean Lewis. I work as the sole backend architect at Divi. And a little, I mean, Utah is crazy. It's definitely been blowing up in the tech scene. Yeah, a little bit about like where I came from. I'm self-taught, don't have a degree. I The way it all worked out is I started working at Instructure, which was uh, kind of a small shop back in the day, back in like 2012, in support. And then I taught myself a little bit of Python because I got a little bored in the job and then just started to code stuff up and then became an SDET, wrote a bunch of Ruby tests, and then started to uh, uh, work on product from there. And it's been a wild ride since. Divi's crazy. Divi's insane. It's been, I've worked there for a year. It's felt like four in the best way possible. I love the place, man. We've grown so much in the last year. Like it doesn't feel like it's been a year. It's been wild. And then Utah, Utah's like, we have been steadily accruing the best talent, in my opinion, across the valley to Divi. We've been very particular about the way that we acquire that talent. I'm super excited to talk about that a little later, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. Uh, I like to 3D print things. I like to work on like electronics. I'm really into smart home stuff. And I work on that in a lot of my free time. And yeah, that's pretty much all I do these days. I play some video games, play League of Legends here and there and to blow off Steam, but yeah. I want to drill into the smart home thing real quick because I did not know that about you. And I'm curious, what's like your favorite thing in your home or that you've done or that you're looking into that you've, in terms of smart home stuff, because like I've got the smart lights and you know the Google Home and all that, but definitely always looking for ideas. Oh, absolutely. So just to really get a little more familiar with electronics. I built my own custom garage door opener and hooked that up to be a smart garage door opener so that you could be like, hey, smart home thing, open my garage door and it would do it. And then it would also keep track of whether or not it was open or closed. I threw a motion sensor on there. So it would actually, if it saw motion, it would reset the timer on when to auto close your garage door. So if you're getting groceries, it doesn't close on you. Yeah, that was a, that was a super fun project. Yeah, smart garage, 100%. You can buy an all-in-one solution for like 60 bucks. Highly recommend doing that. Don't do what I did because a month after I finished it, a power surge actually knocked it out and fried my Arduino. And so all that work, I spent like probably about a month on it. All that work is out the window and I have to like resolder on a new Arduino. If you ever do a project like that, please just plug the Arduino into some headers. Do not solder the Arduino directly onto a breadboard. Learn from my mistake. But I think honestly, the garage door has been my favorite and also smart thermostat. Like if I'm getting too hot in my room, I can just be like, yo, set the thermostat to like 65 or something. So like thermostat and garage. I wonder how many listeners needed to hear never solder an Arduino I, on I hope it's all of them. But that's super cool. Do you have a, a repo for that that we could drop in the show notes? Yeah, I mean, I'll send you the resources. It was actually all open source. I didn't do any, I really didn't do any custom code. It was all just electronics work and then using open source tools. Um, I'll send it over to you. There's this little cool MQTT image you flash onto your Arduino that's like really flexible. And so it just emits MQTT events and accepts MQTT events. And so you just push notifications to it to like, hey, turn this on and off. And you can also, I think it actually has endpoints built in too. 
So I was using um, an ESP8266. And so those are Wi-Fi enabled uh, Arduinos. And yeah, it just is a preset image for it and it's super customizable. But yeah, I'll, I'll send it your way. Uh, for our more naive listeners, what is MQTT? Man, I, I'll have to Google it. I'll have to Google it and tell you what it stands for. But it is, it's essentially a protocol that allows you to, it's an ISO standard for pu like a pub sub model so that it transport. Yeah, it's a pub sub model on TCP IP. And so it provides ordered lossless bidirectional connections. So that you can push events and receive events on small little devices over TCP. Very cool. Well, we've got a number of questions here, so we'll try to get to them. The first one is, we stalked you a little bit. and We saw that you gave a talk at the Utah Elixir meetup in June of last year on Broadway. Can you tell us about it? Essentially, when Broadway first came out, honestly, I want to say Divi was one of the first like big users. So I pushed through... We started using it immediately with SQS, actually, which is Amazon's like queuing, simple queuing service. There's a handful of things that were difficult for me to understand. And so what the talk was focused on was getting people up to speed very quickly on how to implement Broadway, some gotchas there, and also to give them further resources so that they can implement it themselves. So if you actually check out Broadway SQS, there's an example folder, and I have examples in there from that talk. But the talk was essentially just around like how you wire it up, what you need to look for in your implementation, and part of the... Yeah, just really some of the gotchas. It was a very high level talk on how you use Broadway. And Broadway, for those who are listening, Broadway is a gen state. Well, essentially, Jose and co wrote a beautiful library that uses gen stage and Elixir to spin up dynamic pipelines that will consume messages and produce cons like message consumed events. So acts to your source. And it's really awesome for consuming messages from a queue or from Kafka or from events in general. It's really good. And that was first released, I think it was announced at Lone Star last year. And then I immediately jumped on the on using it and then gave a little talk on it. It's really awesome. And we've been using it ever since. And it's really great. So, All right. So do you want to describe the tech stack at Divi? Oh, absolutely. So super high level overview. We are React on the front end. React Native on our mobile applications, so Android and iOS, and we are Elixir on our backend and Python for our data science. So it's very simple, straightforward, but yeah, it's awesome. We've been exclusively Elixir since the beginning on the backend, and we plan to remain that way. If we ever need to bleed into anything else, it'll be, it will have to justify the cost, right? We're trying to make sure that any of the other portions can be handled by the Python uh, side and the data, the data squad. So they're responsible for, I guess, the high level accumulation of data that we would want to use and like reinsert back into the product. And so ideally, we won't have to do that in Elixir because the tool chain for data analysis and data science isn't amazing in Elixir. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. But that's our that's our tech stack. Not yet. It's not amazing. Not yet. Yes. I mean, we have a uh, what's his fit? I can never remember his name. Uh, he always flies out from Japan to talk about the GPU like data science. Tsutsumuru Yamazaki. Absolutely. That guy. When that's available. I have to get everyone's names down. So I'm Susumu Yamazaki. I, I respect it. Thank you. Wabi Sabi. <laughs> yeah. I actually, you know, he talked about Wabi Sabi in one of his talks, in both of his talks that I've seen, actually. And I looked it up, and it's actually a real thing. It's a very cool thing. Everybody should look up Wabi Sabi. He's pretty hip and happening, they say. He's super hip. He's such a smart person. It's amazing. I love Susumu. So what are some Divi-specific hiring challenges that you run into? We're in fintech. 
you'd have a hard time throwing a dart and or you'd have yeah you'd have a hard time throwing a dart and hitting a company that's a fintech and uses elixir like good luck i mean you'll hit a lot of fintechs you will not hit one that uses elixir so it's going to be really the uh, how our tech blends with the financial use case and so a lot of it's around education in general because there's a lot of nuance into what we do and how card processing and changing like how interacting with processors businesses or entities that deal with processing like credit card transactions works. So there's a lot of spin up and onboarding around just the context there. And then in general, just really the way that finance works and how you have to be very careful. You always have to leave audit trails. Like I've worked at plenty of other companies where it's not that big of a deal. If you lose a little bit of data here and there, it is a very big deal and you will get very sued if you lose some data in a financial space. So yeah, it's very important that, to keep all that context in mind. And another one is just Elixir in general. Hiring for Elixir is is rather difficult because there's not a lot of people who know Elixir. And so we've pivoted and we've kind of developed a strategy to, to satisfy that need. And that strategy, I mean, so we focus on hiring for aptitude and not skill set because literally there are very few people that we have hired that have had previous Elixir experience. I want to say it's probably like maybe, maybe five to 10% of our developers. So what we do instead is we focus we focus on language agnostic language agnostic questions and a T-shaped interview to cover breadth and depth of the candidate. And we do two things. We will we do a homework if you and that one's in Elixir if you want to complete it, or you can come on site for pair programming in Elixir. And it's really just to judge whether or not Elixir is one something you're going to be interested in, and then two if you can pick up the basics relatively like quickly. And so that's kind of how we approach hiring new engineers. And it's, it's really awesome. And it's turned out super, super great for us. So, yeah, that's very similar to how we do things at Smart Logic. And I mean, it works out really well. We end up with very smart people on the team. And Elixir seems like a pretty easy language to learn. I'm curious, do you have any strategies, tactics that you use when training up developers on Elixir? And also, I'm especially curious in less experienced developers, how you get them over the humps and actually what those humps are. Yeah, for sure. I think some of the, uh, honestly, this actually blends perfectly into one of the talks I'm going to plug at the end here. But one of the issues with teaching Elixir and functional programming in general is most curriculums are focused on object-oriented programming. So most backgrounds people will come from, it will be rather uncomfortable because the paradigm is so different from an object and keeping track of this like this state everywhere. And so you have to break down a lot of the, the common patterns of programming and translate it to stateless and focusing a lot more on the the minutiae rather than offloading your state just into memory and then hoping and then using it as a crutch later right and so i think honestly like state management is one of the most important things to think about from a um from like onboarding a, a new engineer perspective and one of the ways i like to tackle that there's a book that i really enjoy so it's called domain modeling made functional domain it's really great because he kind of breaks down so it lends functional programming and domain-driven design really well. And I think it does a really good job about blending and kind of breaking down the what you typically get from an, an object-oriented programming language into how you tackle that inside of functional programming. And it focuses a lot on like distinct like states and just events in between and like the just really natural state transitions without having to carry all this context. It also helps you question like, why do I care about this context all the way through anyway, right? Or it starts to have the user beg the question like, well, can I just break this down into like a smaller piece? And once you start doing that, you start to get away from why you would ever want an object in the first place. And it does a really good job about like helping you walk through that. And then he talks, it's it's actually for F sharp. So the middle is all in F sharp. 
I really recommend the beginning and I really recommend the end. And if you're interested in F-sharp, you can do the middle. Uh, the middle is not strictly necessary. But yeah, that's a really great book for helping you understand domain-driven design inside of functional programming. And I think that in and of itself is a great primer on breaking down the barriers of object-oriented programming. I'll let Eric follow up as well, but I, I want to sort of mention something that occurred to me, which is, you know, I've done a little bit of artificial intelligence development and sort of build a framework for chatbots. And the one thing that is a struggle in AI is that you really want there to be a lot of context because you don't know what exactly is going to be required for the AI to make decisions about determining intent, that sort of thing. And so I'm thinking about what Divi does, which maybe you could actually go a little bit more into it, but like transactional sorts of interactions, I think is perfect for functional programming and maybe a little bit more intuitive. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what Divi does is we are actually, I mean, we're doing a lot this year. It's going to be wild. But essentially what the original sales pitch was is we are real-time expense management. So I'm sure most of us here have had to go on a trip and then fill out expenses at the end of the month. And that's always a day you're dreading because it's going to take you all day to find those receipts and dredge those up. So what we do instead is you spend on a Divi card and that Divi card, as the transaction goes through, actually sends a notification to your phone saying like, hey, you need to fill out some fields that your finance team has set out. And you also need to upload a receipt. There's rules around that. It's really great for finance teams. And also for the, the individual user, it's just super quick and easy. And so right when you're there and you have the receipt, it reminds you just by sending you a notification on your phone. So you go and you fill it out as time goes on. And at the end of the month, you don't have anything to do because you did it while you were spending, right? So that's the original pitch. We also do bill pay now. So if you're trying to manage invoicing or paying down an invoice to an external source, so if I fabricate things, right, and I need to pay down my titanium supplier, we actually do that internally as well. And so, and we're also launching a couple other project or products. We're launching reimbursements, which is going to be super awesome. So if you do, so if you actually make it on your Amex and you forgot to put it on your Divi card, there's a super easy way to just jump into Divi and be like, hey, I made this on my Amex. I want to be reimbursed for this. Here's the receipt and also mileage reimbursement as well. So we're essentially trying to become the financial nervous system of businesses. And we're doing that just like one piece at a time. So it's very exciting. But yeah, it's super important. Like, I mean, yeah, fintech really lends itself super well to functional programming. Because there's not a lot of state you want to carry around and everything happens in discrete steps, right? So when you swipe your card, it's an authorization, right? And then that authorization at some point turns into a clear. It's typically, it, it is daily. And then once that, so it's, it, until it's a clear, it is an authorization. And then there's a discrete step where it becomes a clear. And then that's actually like, that money is gone. Like nothing can happen to it. Typically, there's a lot of gotchas here because yeah, money's weird. But essentially, like authorizations are crazy, right? Like when you go to a gas station and you swipe your, your credit card, they can pre-auth you for like 200 bucks just to make sure you're not going to run away with some gas, right? And then they'll actually change the authorization or they'll change the clear to only be what you ended up spending, right? So that's why sometimes if you swipe your debit card at a location, it'll, it may look like an overdraft <laughs> depending on how far it went. So it's crazy. Authorizations are insane. But everything happens in discrete steps, right? That's why it lends itself super well. You don't have to carry around a bunch of context. All you have to know is very small pieces of information so that you can tie them together later and build an audit log. And we're also focusing as a company and as an engineering team on discrete events and, and really leaning more into like an invented architecture so that we have to carry even less state moving forward. And that also allows our data team to start to sew all these data streams together in a way that's much easier than just us globbing all this context together and carrying it everywhere. And then on top of that, it allows the developers much easier access to spin something up. They can just pick a couple streams that they like, and then they can consume from those streams, transform some data or stitch it together, and then make a new stream off of that. So we're focusing a lot on an invented architecture, and it's speeding up development quite a bit. So 
super exciting. So when you said training state management is a primary concern, what you maybe mean is state minimization is a primary concern. Yeah, definitely. Because it's, I mean, before I even knew object-oriented programming, right? And I was just hacking things together in Python. I was just like, well, why don't I just carry everything? You know, why, why not just pass it all around? And so it's one of those things where it's, for some people, it's, they can be habits that are hard to break. But for the most part, once you start to demonstrate the benefit of minimizing your state, then like it's super easy for people to pick up. It, onboarding is a lot about building the mechanisms in a person to ask the questions of, well, what do I need, right? Why do I need this? And I think that's the most important part is just is teaching people the right questions to ask and really having them internalize that. And then moving forward, like, again, it's teaching a man to fish, right? Right on. Eric? So we've learned a little bit of what you do in terms of interviewing once someone finds you, but how do you go about recruiting and finding the new employees? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, we hit a ton of conferences. I went to every Elixir conference except for Gig City last year. So we hit a ton of conferences and we do a lot of just in-person recruiting. And then we also have, in my opinion, the best recruiting team, like in-house recruiting team in Utah. Like you'd have a hard time finding recruiters who are better than ours. They are I don't know how he does it. One of the guys, his name is Bryson. Bryson is a tree. I've known that man for many years. And then he came to he came to Divi and he recruited me to Divi, actually. So he's really good at his job. And then on top of that, actually, word of mouth is huge. It's a small community in Utah. And we have we actually have a lot of engineers. And we everywhere we go, man, even in my free time, like people ask me what I do. I'm just like, oh, I work at Divi. And it's a really cool place. If you're ever looking for a place, just come on down. So it's really about being inviting and then also describing the product pretty quickly. And then on top of that, we're just doing a lot of really cool things. And people find that very interesting. And so people are kind of just like organically flocking to us. We really haven't ever had like a dry pipeline insofar as hiring goes. It's usually like, well, we have too many good people now. How do we pick which ones we hire? You know, it's it's the opposite of a problem. So it's pretty great. Yeah, I've met Bryson. He's a great guy. He's a really just fun person to spend time with, to converse with. So yeah, you do have a great team over there. And also it's just a cool product and a cool brand. And it's very exciting. So yeah, you have a lot of pluses over there. Why Utah? Like, and why Elixir? Like, so many. Is it Utah? Why do so many Utah companies use Elixir? And why is Utah growing so quickly? Yeah. So I mean, Utah is growing so quickly. My hypothesis is we, because of the LDS faith here, the Latter Day Saints, it's very important for them to push their kids into college. And so we actually have a very well educated. 20 something population. And that's been the case for like probably the past 20, 30 years. And so I think that's why the momentum is so high on Utah being an important place to grow into is because we just have a really well-educated populace. And then on top of that, they typically tend to gravitate towards the fields that are growing and software engineering is definitely one of those. And then insofar as, I mean, honestly, that that's probably the base. I mean, I think taxes are good for companies here too. Like we're pretty pro company. And so it's really easy to spin up a, a company and make a decent chunk of cash if you can do it. And so it's it's really financially it's there and then the people are here. And so it's really just those two together. You have smart people and then you also have like tax benefits. So you can spin up a company in Utah. And so I think that's why we're seeing it grow as well. I've also heard that the quality of life in Utah is really nice. Oh, that's all. Awesome. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, so it's, it's kind of hard for me to highlight that. But yeah, no, you're like 20 minutes from the mountains. Like, okay, you can go to Denver and it's like 40 minutes from the mountains, you know, they, yeah, 40 minutes is a little inconvenient, but here you're like a 20 minute drive and you are right in the mountains, right? Like I can go just drive up the Canyon, takes me 20 minutes and I can go do like a beautiful hike around a very beautiful lake. Uh, there's so many different places you can hike here. It's insane. So like you can just get out into wilderness, like super easy. The mountains are always there guiding your way home. It's beautiful. And so like, it's gorgeous. We have kind of a cute nightlife downtown. 
It's not super big, but it exists. And there's a decent chunk of us who participate. And then the people here are super nice, super easy to interact with. The drivers aren't too bad compared to other metropolitan areas I've been in. Yeah, no, all in all, it's like, it's a really good place to live. Yeah, really nice place. Very pretty. It gets a little smoggy in the winter, but that's pretty much it. So, Do you all hire local or do you do remote? Yeah, so we actually do both. One of my favorite hires ever. His name is Paulo. He actually works out or he lives in Chicago. Oh, man, that dude is amazing at remoting, right? Like he is ever present on Slack and he is always talking to people. He's just, he will BS with you on Slack. Just reach out to you and just ask you how your day is doing. It's wild, right? It's almost as if he's there. So we, we definitely hire both remote and local. We've been doing, most of our people are local. We actually have a decent chunk of people out in Vegas right now too. We have several, I want to say four or five engineers in Vegas and they all work at like a WeWork space. Then we have Paulo in, um, in Chicago. And then we have a decent chunk of Elixir developers out of the Czech Republic. So pretty awesome. So Sean, can you talk a little bit about your role at Divi? Eric is actually our only architect, but I know that you were you didn't start at Divi as an architect. Is that right? So can you talk about how you got started at Divi? How are you recruited onto the team over there? And then how did the sort of progression to architect go? Yeah. So I started as a senior software engineer here at Divi. And it was my understanding to get into it that like the the state of the backend was was pretty great. And that was indeed the case when I showed up. There was a lot of, in my opinion, like needs that we needed to to get done inside of the the backend. And so I prioritized that because we, like it was it's very important to have some of these things. Very easy to understand pipelines for how your code gets to production. Monitoring was huge for me as well. Building better like being a little better about how we instrument our logs and how we emit our logs. And so there was a lot of foundational work. And then, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of nuance into the foundational work too, but a lot of what I was doing was very intense, like wet work, just super deep inside of our application. And so that's kind of how the boat got started. And I also started mentoring people when I showed up and started to spread the good word of Elixir. I learned Elixir about the same time I learned Go, which was probably 2013, because they were both like pretty new and shiny. And so I wanted to teach myself Elixir. You can see on my GitHub, I actually have two competing implementations for the same interaction. That's API work between like Reddit and it's pretty, it, it taught me a lot about it. And it was super awesome. So yeah, for us, it was, yeah, it was really just that, that natural progression of like, I started as a senior software engineer. I worked a little bit on product, but for the most part, a lot of my work was focused on getting things, like improving the developer experience. And that's how I really summarized my role as an architect. It, like I'm in charge of the backend engineer experience and making sure that it's like easy to work in our application. It feels good to make changes, right? You don't get mired in like just insane tendrils of like coupling between applications. And then also focusing on mentorship and like capacity and hiring too. So I, I do most of our, well, I'm one of the components in a lot of our backend engineer interviews. And then, yeah, I focus a lot on mentorship. So I actually do one-on-ones with every backend engineer monthly just to like keep track of where they are, where they're going, what they're on track for and then help them progress. And so we actually review, we do one-on-one reviews on their MRs and to kind of guide them through what they're doing and what they could be doing better or you know whether or not they're just like on pace to kill it for their next level. And so a lot of that, what I focus on these days is higher level organization and yeah, and mentorship and hiring. And so I do kind of, I ideate on what big pieces and what mountains we should move within the, the architecture. But for the most part, I really consult with with our high-level engineers here. And it's really about a consultation role. Again, like this is not my show. This is not my rodeo, right? It's a one of the things I'm most proud of at Divi is it's always we, right? I'm never under illusion that like this is mine. It's not mine. And 
I, my brain can't handle it if it was, right? And so instead, like, we don't hire smart engineers so that I can tell them what to do, right? We hire smart engineers so that we can figure out what to do. And that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. And so what's, yeah, it's really just leading the charge on getting a lot of that done, making sure it actually happens. And so I would count myself almost as a project manager for like tech debt on the back end as well. So mainly project manager on tech debt on the back end. I move some mountains here and there and then focus on mentorship and hiring. So mm, upper management in your future, I see. Allegedly. All right. So our next question, we, we already know that you have more than just Elixir in your full stack, but does an individual dev, will they primarily work in just Elixir or will they, will you be expected to kind of cross train in, in all of the languages that you do? That's a great question. We set that expectation at hiring. So some people want to do full stack, which is going to be front end, oh, web front end and back end. Some people just want to do back end. Some people just want to do front end. It really just depends on what we need at the time. And we always make sure to set the expectation when people come into interview. And so, yeah, it really depends on the engineer. We never, we are totally fine if you want to branch out. We, in fact, we have an engineer who does mobile front end and back end. He just likes to get stuff done. So can't blame the man. It's beautiful. And so, yeah, it really just depends on what you want to come do. If you just want to be back end engineer, come be a back end engineer. And that will be only Elixir. So that's another job of mine is to make sure that it's, it stays just Elixir. And I'm passionate about that as well. So. so let's talk a little bit about training and onboarding some more. I'm curious. I mean, you clearly are bringing on a lot of new people. Onboarding. Can you tell us a little bit about how you onboard and what you think is critical for onboarding new developers? Yeah. So to give you some context, we've eh, quadrupled our engineering team in the last year, which is a lot of people to add and somehow maintain culture. So I think one of the most important things on onboarding is going to be this culture is really just assimilating someone into your culture and making sure that they feel welcomed and they feel as if they're part of the team. So we do, I mean, what we do is we'll pair someone off and someone is your dedicated resource to get you onboarded for the first couple of weeks. Depend, the time frame is different depending on the level and it's really dependent on you know how much resources this person needs. And so I think some of the most important things you can do is going to be, you know, take the person out to lunch, like we essentially mandate going out to lunch with the, the person the first week, right? Just to guarantee that they get some FaceTime. And then on top of that, they get a partner of someone who's been here for a decent chunk of time and already has connections with other engineers so that, that social network can start to grow and, and blossom. We also make sure that we have everything that they could need on day one so they don't have to do a lot of their own setup. We try to get pretty much everything in place with their with their tech before they show up. Their desk is already set up. So you don't have to sit there and like plug stuff in, right? You can just jump right into it. So ideally, we actually try to get each engineer to commit and ship to production day one. That's our goal. And so to facilitate that, we've had to implement a lot of the processes I just talked about. So yeah, our goal day one is to ship to production for every engineer. And if you fail to that, you're fired, right? Is that how? You and your partner are fired, yeah. (laughs) So I'm an employee. I've been at Divi for a while. How do you support the growth of developers who are already on the team? Absolutely. I think that goes back into what I said earlier a little bit about do a monthly one-on-one and they do one-on-ones with their manager. So I'm not a direct like HR manager. I just manage the the developer experience on the backend guild, but I'm very passionate about making sure that we're on track to retain the beautiful talent we have. So I do monthly one-on-ones with those who are interested. And then I try to catch up with people who maybe are too busy or whatever every now and then. But yeah, definitely try to have those monthly one-on-ones and then really go into what they need. And then if they need something that we need to change as an organization, I take that back to leadership and start to work on. Another huge thing is supporting their learning. So I'm always trying to like pedal books to people and talk about new books and start book clubs here. It's pretty great. And I love people's uh, diverse opinions on some of the things that we read. And then it's going to be, we take a lot of engineers to a lot of conferences. We try to get at least, we try to get an engineer to at least one conference a year. And that's at least, right? If like we're feeling, or if we're like all going, 
So like we're going to Lone Star, right? And so I've been trying to like drag engineers with me so that we can do some cool like team building in Austin as well. I think we have like eight or nine people going. It's going to be rad. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to like pedal conferences and get people to go and like just to start to like build the culture and, and interweave people a little more. So I think one of the biggest things you can do is really just make someone feel accepted culturally. And then, and I think Divi's really good at that, probably the best in Utah, honestly, get them feeling accepted culturally and then get them feeling like, you know, someone's listening to my problems and someone's going to action on it. That's the biggest takeaway I have, or my biggest goal for those monthly one-on-ones is to make sure people feel like they're heard and that someone will take action. And so that's what I'm here for. Awesome. Sean, I've got one more question for you before we wind this down. And the question is yourself personally, you're self-taught, you are in a position of leadership, I think is fair to say at Divi. So you've really come a long way, I think, from working support at some other company, right? The question is, how do you challenge yourself to continue to learn and grow as a developer? Definitely have come a long way, and it's an honor to be in a position of leadership at such a great company. How I challenge myself currently, it's going to be, I, I think the best thing you can do is to, to never believe that you've made it per se, because if you lure yourself into a false sense of security of being on top, then you will be quickly not on top, right? My first company taught me that in structure, right? They're a big upset in the educational technology company. And the reason being is Blackboard sat on their laurels for far too long, right? Blackboard had... Blackboard had cornered the market. They'd never improved the product. And then people got sick of it, right? Like they were seeing the web grow in an amazing way or interactivity on the web grow in a a great way. And Blackboard just fell behind. So that left a a distinct gap for Instructor to jump in. I feel like it's the same way for engineering as well, right? If you just sit on your laurels and you're not interested in growing or, or adopting new technology or just playing with new stuff, then very quickly you will find that someone else will jump in and the new tech will have quickly outpaced you. And so for me, I feel like the most important thing you do is just adopt a learning posture, right? Like I never assume that I'm the, the subject matter expert in anything. I always have something to say, you know, the way I like to put it up is I have strong opinions loosely held. And so I'll come out with an opinion, you know, super strong out of the gate. But if you have a good argument, man, like I'm more than happy to drop it and admit that you're right, you know? And so I think that's one of the most important things you can do is really just double down on the fact that you will never know everything and that's okay. And just for me, I still try to strive to learn everything, but I know I'll never get there, right? And the fact that it's a never-ending journey, I think inspires me because there's always something more to do and there's always another book to read. And that's something I'm super passionate about is just continuing to learn. All right. I've got one final question before we wrap this up. So you all mentioned that you can't lose any data as part of being a financial institution. So the database of choice you've picked is MongoDB, correct? Oh, absolutely. How'd you know? <laughs> Our database of choice is actually Postgres. And Postgres is Postgres is great. I mean, I don't think I've ever not used Postgres. So I don't know if I can... Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Not not using Postgres. <laughs> not, not using, yeah, it's like industry standard at this point. One of the most important ways to go about not losing data is just to make sure that you have like really high quality checkpoints anytime that data is going to transition. And then on top of those checkpoints, one of the things you want to reach for is going to be item potency, which is for the layman. Item potency is going to be just making sure that the same event can happen twice, but it won't cause two new things, right? So if I create a user with like the same email, because that user was already created, I wouldn't create it again, right? That's a very like simple example, but the same is true for transactions, right? Like if we get two transactions and they're exactly the same, we don't want to take money away from you twice, right? So we have to be very careful about interacting with item potency and making sure that a duplicate doesn't cause extra problems. And then just be, you want to build in retries. So you want to build in like a lot of mechanisms for your your software to self-heal and to look at like what the current state is and where it needs to be. And so if you have those high quality checkpoints and then you have workers who are 
checking each checkpoint, making sure everybody who was at checkpoint B got to checkpoint C is the most important thing you can do for data fidelity. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anyone using MongoDB that wasn't like just out of college and still obsessed with Node. So Absolutely. And I think if you're going to use MongoDB, I mean, you might as well just do um, a JSON B field at Postgres, you know? That's exactly what I... Yeah, <laughs> you're exactly right. <laughs> no shots. I didn't mean to take a shot at just out of college students who, you know, want to do the Node.js thing. It's just a terrible idea. That's all. So, Sean, super duper looking forward to seeing you at Lone Star. Hopefully we'll get to go out and, you know, enjoy each other's company a little bit as we normally do at the conferences. Before we let you go, do you have any final plugs or asks for the audience? Feel free to use this time to shamelessly self-promote or drop your social media handles, anything you want to do. Absolutely. So, Divi, I mean, we we quadruple our engineering count last year. So if you're looking to be a software engineer and Elixir interests you, right, just drop us a line. So you can go to, uh, I think it's, yes, it's getdivi.com. So G-E-T-D-I-V-V-Y.com slash jobs. And it will take you to our jobs page. Please apply if you're interested. Like we love talking to new engineers. And honestly, if any of your jobs are on that page, please apply to. This is not strictly limited to engineers. Divi is the best place I've ever worked. And I think that will remain the case even long after Divi. I seek to rebuild this culture somewhere else one day. But yeah, Divi is awesome. And then if you want to hit me up, I'm Frickshawn on Twitter. I tweet a lot of nonsense. That's F-R-I-C-S-E-A-N. And then I'm Sophistication on GitHub. I'm always doing stuff on GitHub, or at least trying to. I make a lot of PRs to Elixir repos these days. And that's S-O-P-H-I-S-T-I-C-A-S-E-A-N. That's hard to spell. Yeah, so th- those are my handles online. If, if you want to drop a line, if you're curious about Divi or whatever, DM me on Twitter and we'll, we can talk about it. Or you can also find me on LinkedIn. It's just Sean Lewis and I'm the architect or backend architect at Divi. Pretty easy to find. Yeah, hit me up because we love hiring passionate engineers. And that's pretty much the only bar to getting at Divi is just being passionate and being an engineer, you know, and we will help you with the rest. So. Excellent. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Sean Lewis, and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We'll take on any cool project with a cool team. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a project we could help you with, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those social media networks and join us next week on Elixir Wizards for more working with Elixir.